Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're going to fucking get down to it, okay? <laughs> Shit's about to get really real, really real. Thank you so much for writing this great book. You're just going to read from it right now, right? And then we're going to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. Chavisa Woods, you guys. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> Thanks for coming out. Um, it's my first time in L.A. in like 10 years, um, but it's really nice to be here. Like I said, I'm really excited to see you all, and now I'm going to make us all feel really bad, probably. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from the introduction um, to explain sort of why I decided to write such a dark list um, 100 times, a memoir of sexism. Um, so here we go. In this book, I've cataloged 100 formative incidents of sexist discrimination. I've decided I'm actually just going to stand because I like to stand. Of sexist discrimination, violence, sexual harassment, assault, and attempted rape I've experienced from childhood to now. In order to paint a clear picture of the impact sexism has had on me throughout my life. All of my life, when I have tried to talk to men about sexism, my main obstacle has been trying to convince them, quite simply, that it exists. I've exhausted myself trying to get men to understand that sexism is something that actually has a critical and near constant impact on my life. When I'm trying to convey this to a man who is questioning me, I usually start by telling a story, often one of the stories I've included in this book. I recount an instance of sexual assault or harassment in detail. Many men then counter these narratives by telling me about one time when a woman smacked their ass at a bar or made an overt come on to them. But these men tell me they didn't mind it. The implication being I am overreacting to an incident that has an equivalent in the lives of men. But I am not just talking about things I did not mind or things that were invited. I'm not talking about one or two times. I'm not talking about 10 or 20 times. I'm talking about at least 100 times, actually many more. I struggled to write this introduction. I asked friends and fellow authors what they thought I needed to cover in the introduction, and I had a list of topics I wanted to be sure to clarify. I wanted to be sure to talk about why I haven't named any of the men who harassed or assaulted me in this book. I've left many of these descriptions quite anonymous, actually. I've done this partly because I believe that public persecution and punishment of individuals has huge limitations when speaking of changing a larger systemic social issue, and also because I have seen that all men have been socialized to participate in sexist behavior. Though there are a handful of men described in this book who are serial sexual predators and who I have named within my community and to people who need to know that they are dangerous, none of these men who are serial sexual predators are particularly powerful or famous. So in the context of this book, naming would only be sensational. I wanted to be sure to clarify that I know that all women have had to deal with sexism from the time they are born or come out as transition to being women. I wanted to make sure I made clear that trans women, queer women, 
and cis, straight women alike have had to bear the burden of sexism. Above all this, there was something else I wanted to weave in, something that always evaded me when I searched for words to describe it. I begin thinking about the feminist texts I've read that have granted lucidity, toward my, lucidity to my journey toward awareness of how my experiences as a human have been defined by the fact that I am a woman. I have struggled to fi find the ability to name the murky obstacles on my craggy path, which have remained invisible to so many, it seems, because they are as intermingled into our existence as water particles in misty air. It is difficult to realize that the precipices you are attempting to surmount are not what cause you to slip. Rather, the condition of the atmosphere itself is to blame for the slickness that disallows achieving a certain foothold. What is this atmosphere, though? What is this thing? So a lot of people point to the fact, they find it startling, that the first chapter in this book um, actually starts when I was five years old. And I wrote this in a completely linear order. And I think that this is an experience that a lot of women my age will probably recall having at some point in their childhood. Number one. When I was five years old, I was playing in the sprinklers in my swimming suit with a five-year-old boy. He kept pinching my butt to the point that I started crying. I repeatedly told him to stop and finally retaliated by hitting him. He didn't stop. He kept doing it, chasing me and pinching my butt harder and harder until it actually hurt. When I went inside and told on him, his mother laughed at me and told me that I probably liked it. Almost all of the adults present thought it was cute. I learned quickly that if a boy was hurting me, he would get in trouble. But if the way he was hurting me was sexual, I would be mocked and it would be assumed that I secretly enjoyed the assault. So yeah, so that's just, we sort of open at the age of five and then it keeps going um, through these sort of smaller incidents that probably sound familiar to a lot of women and maybe somewhat casual. Um, and then the first time that I experienced something that was really on the edge of a serious sexual assault, I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old and selling candies, cookies, and cheeses door to door to raise money for the school band, as all the band kids did every year. Mine was a close-knit, quiet, rural neighborhood. I knocked on a neighbor's door. The man of the family who I knew casually answered the door. His wife and kids were gone. He ordered some candy and gave me a large bill. I didn't have change on me, so I went across the street to my house to get some dollar bills. When I returned, he opened the door and he was wearing nothing but a blue men's bikini bottoms, which he had pulled down in front so that his penis was fully exposed and was right in my face because of our height difference and where I was standing on his stoop. He began asking me casual questions about his candy order. I held his money up to him, stunned. He didn't take it for a while, but kept talking with his exposed penis in my face. I felt terrified, frozen. I was confused about the nature of what was happening because I was 10 years old and he was in his 40s and he was acting like he wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. I had been warned about men being inappropriate with me, but I had always pictured them as grotesque strangers creepily attempting to lure me in or initiating some physical str struggle to abduct or rape me. I had never imagined a man I had known for years would just casually place his penis in my face while chatting about the weather. 
I stood silently holding the money up to him as he talked. He finally took the money from my hand and tried to keep talking to me, but as soon as he took the bills, I turned and ran away. That was number seven. Um, at different parts in this book, it's not all sexual harassment. Um, some of it's violence. I also was talking to someone today who said they were surprised by how much just straight up violence and not only sexual harassment was in this book. Um, also, there's a lot of institutionalized um, sexism that I think most of us experience throughout our lives, but I don't know if it's always thought of necessarily as institutionalized sexism when it's happening. Um, there's a chapter in this book where I talk about the fact that even though I've been sexually harassed multiple times in school, as most girls had, there was still a very strict dress code that was very different for the girls and the boys, which I find is true in a lot of schools around the country. And the girls, if we were wearing shirts just with a little bit thinner sleeves than this, with our shoulders exposed, we'd have to put on a jacket. But the boys in my school were allowed to wear jerseys so baggy that sometimes you could see their full chests and their nipples. Um, and they were never corrected for that. So that was sort of reinforced the pecking order in the school in a really serious way. And also then if a girl did get sexually harassed, it could be pointed to that, well, you were wearing a low-cut low shirt or a short skirt. Um, so that just sort of sets the tone for the atmosphere that we're living in. And then I'm gonna skip ahead to number 17. So we've done number one, number seven, this is number 17. When I was 14 years old, a man in his 30s who was in an authority position working with children and teenagers at the local community theater where I acted in many plays, attacked me, held me down, and tried to rape me. This was an intense physical altercation. I barely knew him and this happened within the first five minutes the first time I was ever in a room alone with him. He was the theater and lighting technician and was supposed to be giving me a private lesson on running the lighting board. Many other students had signed up for and received lessons from him after rehearsals. He and I were alone in a small tech booth together and there was only one other person in the entire building which was quite large. I weighed about 100 pounds when I was 14 and he was an adult male in his early 30s. I remember this day I was wearing a skirt and nylon pantyhose. I was sitting on my knees next to him. He was also on his knees because the booth was so small. I'd been with him for only a few minutes. All I'd really said was hello. As he began explaining how to work the lights, he grabbed my ankle and then pulled me toward him, knocked me on my back, and got on top of me. He then held me down with his arm across my chest. Then he started running his hand up my leg until he got up under my skirt, and then he started touching me sexually. At first I froze, but my mother is also a sexual assault survivor and had told me from a young age that this might happen to me someday. She always told me whatever I did to try not to freeze. I didn't even know what she meant when she told me that. But the first thing I did when this happened was freeze and it was hard to unfreeze. I was confused and terrified and everything in my body had suddenly frozen, something I'd never experienced so clearly before. This man was an adult, an authority figure, and something I can never get out of my head that I think also caused me to freeze was that the whole time he was knocking me over, holding me down and touching me, he kept calmly talking about the lights. He kept explaining to me how to work the lighting board as if he were still giving me a lesson in theater tech. It was surreal. Years after I've realized that he probably did this in case the one other person in the building came near the small room we were in, 
He would hear the man teaching me the ins and outs of theater tech and assume everything was fine. I couldn't find my voice, but I finally began kicking my legs and scooting backward. It was such a weird feeling. I felt physically unable to speak or yell. I wiggled and scooted back, wrestling with him. He kept holding me down, tugged at my tights, trying to get them off of me. But I kicked and scooted back and was somehow able to get him off of me, or at least get myself mostly out from under him. I turned and crawled out of the booth, stood and ran to the wooden ladder that led down from the lighting booth into the theater office. He was up and coming after me, and he yelled in a deep, commanding voice, Stop. Wait. And I did. And even writing this, I cannot believe I did, but maybe I can believe it a little, because I was a girl who hated getting in trouble. And when an adult gave me orders, I instinctively did what they said. I was also terrified of him. I was barely 14. I was more of a child than I realized then. I stopped. I waited, panting, bent over, my hand reaching for the first rung of the ladder. He walked casually up to me and said simply, I'll go down first. I'll hold the ladder in case you fall. I stepped back. He descended the ladder, then stood at the bottom holding it, which was pointless because it was connected at the top and folded into the lighting booth so it couldn't actually fall. I came down the ladder after him. Like I said, I was wearing a short skirt and sheer pantyhose. As I descended the ladder, I could feel him looking at my skirt, and he began saying things to me about my panties. I can see it. I like your sexy panties, and so on. As soon as I got down the ladder, I pushed past him, bolted out the office door, grabbed my things, and ran to the parking lot where my grandmother was already waiting early to pick me up. Um, I was primarily raised by my maternal grandparents, so she's really a mother figure to me. Um, when I saw her car, I was at that moment certain I was going to run to her and tell her everything that had just happened. But when I got to the car, I saw my boyfriend at the time sitting in the front passenger seat with my grandma, and I sank suddenly down into some silent hole inside of myself that I never knew existed. There were several reasons for this. I did not want to, my boyfriend to know what the man had done. I would have been deeply ashamed for him to know that. Also, my grandmother had recently discovered that I wasn't a virgin. I had been sexually active with my boyfriend, and she was upset about this. To be clear, I had a good relationship with my boyfriend, and, we were very, and I was a very willing participant in our sexual activity. But because she had found out I wasn't a virgin, there had been several months of intense division between my grandmother, my boyfriend, and me. My grandmother is very religious, and I also became sexually active unusually young. The fact that my boyfriend was in the car and they were both smiling was a sign things were maybe being mended. I got into the back of the car and they both turned and smiled at me. My boyfriend was beaming. He winked at me. Yes, he was trying to mend things with my grandma, obviously, which he knew was important to me. A wave of intense guilt came over me. I was young and I wasn't a virgin and my grandmother hated that. And I was wearing a skirt that my grandma thought was too short and it suddenly felt to me like I'd definitely been asking for this man to rape me. So I didn't say anything to anyone for many months. Um, and then what happens later is, months after this, I met two other girls who had been assaulted by the same lighting technician. Um, and then there were rumors that he was also dating another 15-year-old girl in, who, in the community theater who had made his tech assistant. Those girls and I went and reported him um, there was a long internal investigation, and he was finally quietly let go. And then he was hired back again two years later. 
um, when I was the lead in a play. And then I had to report him again because I never went to the police. They asked me if I wanted to go to the police once. I said no. So it was all handled internally. Um, so he was fired again. So then in 2015 or 16, I went back home to visit um, my small town and I found out he was back at the community theater again and had been there for about 10 years. Um, and so then I contacted one of the women who was assaulted by him, who's now like a decorated military officer who lives in another state. And we wrote letters all throughout 2016 um, of, describing our assaults and sent it to the board of this community theater. And they responded to us once and then they cut off all contact with us. The president of the community theater acted like we were doing this for some kind of attention, which is like bizarre, seeing that we don't even live in this small town anymore and what sort of attention would we be getting from privately trying to get this lighting tech fired. Um, and then we had to call the Department of Children and Family Services. And I was doing some of this while I was watching the Christine Blasey Ford hearing. And people kept saying, why would she wait so long to come forward about this? And I thought, well, people are asking me the same thing about um, trying to get this lighting tech out of the small town community theater in Southern Illinois. Why does it matter now? It's 20 years later. And I thought, God, I'm just upset that he has the amount of power that he does after what he did to me. I can't imagine how upset she is about Brett Kavanaugh and then I also thought, oh gosh, if we can't even get this lighting tech out of this community theater in Southern Illinois, I don't know um, how much of a chance there is that she's going to be able to oust Brett Kavanaugh with this sort of story. Um, and that was really depressing in some ways. Um, and so there was finally an investigation and I thought eventually he would be fired, but he wasn't fired. Um, he quit because he was afraid and so the investigation was closed. So there's still nothing on the books about the lighting tech. Anyway. Um, all right, so I'm going to close the beginning of the reading with one more piece from the book. And this is all sort of from the early years. The book goes from five until now. And it goes from through many different places, which I'll be talking about in a little bit. But I really want to talk about what atmosphere um, many women are raised in and just sort of what it looks like. And I think this piece, um, this piece number 19, that's where we are, we're still in Southern Illinois here. Number 19 really has a lot of different elements to it. Number 19. When I was 14 years old, I broke up with my 16-year-old boyfriend, whom I'd been dating for just over a year. We had lost our virginity to one another, which many kids in my school and adults in my small town knew. Gossip travels fast in small towns. My boyfriend took the breakup very hard. He told friends he wanted to kill himself. He said things to me that implied he thought it would be better if we both died. Some people were upset with me for breaking up with him. I was told by several peers that I should get back together with him because he loved me and I was breaking his heart. After I broke up with him, he continued approaching me in the hallway at school between classes and touching me affectionately, telling me how beautiful I was and asked me to go, asking me to go out with him again. I repeatedly told him I didn't want to get back together with him. One day, in the hallway, I was standing and chatting with my best female friend, and he came up to me, pinched my waist, and then put his hand up under my shirt and rubbed the bare skin of my lower back intimately. I grimaced and pulled away from him. He said, hey, cutie, and winked at me. I sighed and shook my head. He left to go to class. I felt helpless and weak. I did not want him to touch me that way anymore, and he was doing it constantly, sometimes several times a day at school. 
He won't stop, I lamented to my best friend. It makes me feel sick to my stomach when he does that. She was angry. She was protective of me. She took me by the arm and said that we were going to tell the principal. I planted my feet. He's not really doing anything wrong, I told her. I just want him to stop acting like we're still together. I didn't want to tell the principal. I didn't want him to get in trouble. What he was doing didn't register to me as harassment, though it did make me feel panicked and disturbed. My best friend was a country girl, an athlete, who was never very political, and I don't think anyone would have thought of her as a feminist, but she simply said, do you want him touching you like that? I shook my head no. Then he has to stop, she said. If you won't tell, I will. The principal had been in the room when I described the attempted rape by the lighting technician only months before. Even my best friend did not know about this. I felt guilty going to Mr. Smith with yet another issue about a male touching me sexually without my consent. I thought he would see me as the common denominator in the equation, that he would see me as the problem. I followed meekly behind my friend, my head down, and she found the principal standing outside the office. She told him that my ex had been touching me romantically all the time, pinching my waist, rubbing me, and that I told him to stop, but he kept doing it. Is that true, Mr. Smith asked me. I looked down at my feet and I mumbled, yeah, but he's just used to touching me that way because he was my boyfriend. He's confused because it used to be okay for him to do that. The principal was visibly angry. His face reddened, his nostrils flared. He said sternly, but he's not your boyfriend anymore. And if you don't want him to touch you, he can't touch you. I was shocked by this. I had never really thought of it that way. And I definitely did not think my male principal would see it this way so clearly. A few hours later, my ex-boyfriend was removed from the school building because he freaked out in class and threw his desk at a female teacher. I was told that Mr. Smith had taken him into the office, had a talk with him about touching me. It was just a short talking to. He didn't even get in serious trouble, no detention or anything. And I hadn't wanted him to get in serious trouble either. But after this talk with the principal, he was so upset that he went back to class and fumed quietly. Then when the teacher gave him an instruction to participate in the day's activity, he stood up, began yelling at her, picked up his desk, and threw it at her. He had always been a good student and had never been violent before. He got some minimal punishment for throwing his desk at a teacher. I believe he had to meet with the guidance counselor for a period and received three days suspension. Everyone knew he was having a hard time with our breakup, which was why he was acting out and people felt sorry for him. A few days after this incident, about three weeks after I'd broken up with him, I was alone in my house and I came out of the shower wearing nothing but a towel wrapped around me to find him standing in my kitchen. I'd never been afraid of him before, but in this moment I was afraid. He was upset about my going to the principal. He said, do you know how that felt when he told me, you better leave that little girl alone, like I'm some kind of monster? He berated me for telling on him, then begged me to come back to him and be his girlfriend again. And when I refused, he screamed at me, called me names, shook his fist at me, banged it on the table, told me he wanted to die. My grandparents finally came home interrupting his tirade and he left. This incident was to become one of a several years long string of many similar unannounced visits. About a month after I broke up with him, I'd missed the school bus, and a boy I knew casually from band practice offered to give me a ride at home. I accepted. This boy was a bit of a show-off. He had a metallic purple truck with hydraulics, 
You guys remember in the 90s, bounced. Um, and on the way home, he took me on a short, short joy ride, the hydraulics bouncing up and down and some ridiculous hip hop blasting on the speakers. People noticed this. It was a small town, so that was sort of noticeable. And someone told my ex-boyfriend that I'd been riding around the town with this boy. The next day, I got a call from the boy who'd driven me home saying that my ex had come into his house, wielding a knife, shoved him against the wall, and told him that if he ever spoke to me again, he would kill him. This boy asked me to please tell my ex that he and I were just friends and weren't dating. I told an adult male family member about everything that was happening. I was frantic. And he responded to me by saying, rejection burns, babe. He's really in love with you. I remember the first time a girl I loved rejected me. It's the worst feeling in the world. Um, <laughs> so that went on for 10 years, um, although his visits lost their threatening edge. For 10 years, he would come over unannounced and ask me to be his girlfriend again and later marry him and flirt with me. Um, and I just remember everyone in the town sort of acted like his behavior was my fault because I had broken up with him and they knew I had had sex with him and I shouldn't have had sex with him if I didn't want to stay with him. Um, and then I write at the end of this paragraph, I often wonder how people would have reacted if the situation were reversed. If he had broken up with me and I had reacted the same way he did, how would they have responded to a teenage girl begging her ex-boyfriend to get back together with her? touching him sexually in the hallway, breaking into his house, threatening other girls, attacking a teacher. While he was seen as that poor boy having trouble with dealing with a broken heart, I have no doubt I would have been dealt with as a crazy bitch. There are horror movies about women behaving this way. There are romantic comedies about men doing the same. Thank you. Thank you so much just fucking wanted to give you a hug for like weeks reading this book. I was just like, oh my God, now I've gotten to give you a hug today. So that felt, that felt satisfying. Um, thank you for writing this. I also wanted to burn the world down reading this. Um, what was it like for you to come out the other, first of all, how, how long w did you work on this book? Like how long? About nine months. Okay. Under a year. It's the quickest book I've ever written because uh -huh. um, I usually write fiction and all of this. I found out when you don't have to, you know, come up with some fake situation and it all actually happened, it's much easier for me to write a book really quickly. How did you, did you feel like a changed person coming out the other end of having written it? Like, what was it like for you to finish the book? Um, I felt relieved because the process, everyone always asked me, like, if this was healing and they think it was cathartic. It was actually really a horrible People think experience. that about memoirs, and I don't think it's like, no, I just sat in my pain for like nine months. It was, yeah, it was really hard, and I think I was even at McDowell recently, and I had to, I noticed that the cop, I didn't think the copy editor had done a good job, and I'm like, I'm going to read the whole fucking thing again in one day. And I went and read the whole thing, and when I finished, I was trembling, and I was like, I am not far, far enough away from this yet. So when it was over and when it was edited and when I didn't have to go in and write it anymore, I can read it and that's a very different experience. Mm -hmm. But going in and choosing the words and having to pick apart these experiences was sort of re-traumatizing. Yeah, no and doubt. And I'm glad it's over. Yeah, I feel like when, <laughs> you know, most writers, I think when you sit down and write anything, you have, vo you know, voices in your head that aren't necessarily awesome or don't necessarily belong to you. And I was wondering, did you feel like there were 
like voice other voices in your head looking over your shoulder while you were working on this and what and if that's and if that was the case like how did you work with that as a writer the voices in my head were the voices of men I've had arguments with and that's mm -hmm. why I wrote this book I'm a storyteller so when I'm t trying to convey something um, to someone who doesn't seem to understand my experience or perspective I always want to tell a story and when I'm arguing with like straight men who are sort of anti-feminist I, I'm like, oh, I don't even have time to tell you all of the stories that would make you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about my experience of sexism and it being bigotry. Mm -hmm. um, so when I finished this book, I sort of felt like maybe I should like print it out as a pamphlet too so I could just <laughs> hand it out instead of having that argument. But I really just wanted to um, elicit empathy in men. That's why I wrote this book. So that was, those were the voices in my head when I yeah. wrote it. Yeah. Did you feel... Uh I, I felt like reading it, I f um, something that I think I've experienced as a person who's also experienced this kind of, you know, misogyny in the world where, when you, where you have to kind of almost perform a certain reasonableness. Yes. And I wondered if you felt that pressure and, and how, you ha how you handled that. Because, again, as a writer, it's, it's like that can become self-censoring. So how did you work with that pressure? I feel like the books itself sort of spoke to the pressure because uh. I think what hap if I don't have to be reasonable in the argument anymore after I've written this because what has happened to most women I know is completely unreasonable. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a section in the book in my 20s, I'm like, in the book, it's in my life. Um, in the book, my, the, my character starts hitting men all the time in my 20s. Like I love that part so much. <laughs> <laughs> that was cathartic for me as a reader. <laughs> that part. Yeah, it was in. It started in New York City after like three of my lovers and one of my best friends were all violently raped um, within like a year or two, and all these other horrible things had happened to me. And I just started. If a man hit on me and I wasn't interested in him, and I said no, and he then touched me, even my shoulder or something, I'd hit him. Yeah. Um, when I was like 21, 22, 23, and I assaulted many men. Um, in a very short amount of time. And I think most people saw me as acting very unreasonable. And I don't usually behave that way now, but I think at the time for the situation, I think it was somewhat reasonable. It, it, it's completely reasonable. And it actually <laughs> makes me, re you're reading it and you're like, why aren't there more, why don't we see women completely losing their shit more often? Like it made me think of like the Scum Manifesto and it made me think of Andrea Dworkin's Mercy, book Mercy, you know, um, good company. yeah, very good company. These books where you're like, Oh my, you know, where, pe I mean, those are two great books. If you haven't read them that are feel like companion pieces to, to, um, to your book. Wow. Yeah, for sure. And, and just make a case without even trying to, you know, going out and beating up men whenever you want. Kind of. I don't know. That's I don't do that anymore. No. Well, but I did do it, um, for a few years. Yeah. I also reacted no, like that when I was younger but it's like you're carrying around with you it's like poison for you it was poison you know? and that was so a few of my older straight like male friends who are also writers mm -hmm. who love my fiction and then came to this reading at the mid-Manhattan public library and were like what's what's this you know yeah <laughs> they were walking with me after and they were they kept just they kept telling me why are you so upset you just gotta kick guys in the balls who act that way like punch them hit them and I was like I did <laughs> like for and many then years it's like a video and game like and then a, there's another one that pops that, up that yeah. you haven't kicked I mean it's like <laughs> yeah he's like they didn't stop and I was like that one did 
<laughs> but it doesn't solve a larger problem. Right. It's not a sustainable response. Yeah. Um, what, what, if anything, have you felt like is a sustainable response? Like, what have you done to take care of yourself after, you know, we're still here in the world and none of this stops and... I think, like, just ha- I, I don't know what I do. To- Everyone keeps asking me what I do to take care of myself, yeah. and I think maybe I should come up with something. <laughs> I don't <laughs> probably really take care of myself. I just want to write the next book. Sure. Um, but what has helped me is the whole reason I wrote this book is because I think that when certain narratives have the power to propel empathetic understanding, and I really wanted to be able to put this in the hands of, like, a straight guy who I grew up with from my hometown who's still there, and for him to read it and be like, oh, I understand this in a different way than I ever have before. Mm-hmm. Or just like an average, like American straight male. Um, and, you know, I actually just got an email from an old friend of mine in southern Missouri who s- just told me today that he read the whole thing and he's telling a lot of men he knows about it and who he works with and it did exactly that. Um, so that's starting that's to make so me great. feel like I'm doing something. Like it's a yeah. drop in the bucket of the Me Too movement. If yeah. the Me Too movement is some metaphorical bucket, I don't right. know, that we're filling um, with horrible stories <laughs> to try to change things. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I mean, that. yeah, that. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing. And this is like your impetus for this book is so different than your impetus for the other writing that you've done. Completely, yeah. I'm usually a very stylized fi- fiction writer. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not overtly political like this. Was your writing process different? Oh, it's, I think it's, yeah. I think writing memoir is completely different than writing fiction. Um, And this was the most activist book I ever did. I actually just sat down to write my stories and hope that it would change someone's mind or make them understand something in a new way. And a lot of times when I'm writing fiction, I just, I'm going for some kind of weird aesthetic and there's Mm -hmm. no like didactic point I want anyone to come out with. I actually want the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, were there other points other than just like the relentless reality of misogyny and how brutal it is that you wanted to have come through in the narrative while you were writing it? Absolutely. So like my dad keeps asking me or had been asking me, I don't know if he's read the book now and has decided to stop asking. And a lot of other men have been asking me, how do women even, how do men even flirt with women anymore? You know, and what are you, well, what's this book about? Is this about flirtation? And I think... (laughs) I think a guy um, who I knew from my hometown was like, there was a man flirting with you at a bar last year. Did you put that in the book? And I was like, no. What? And then he's like, well, what is this book even about? And I'm like, it's not. <laughs> I, and I think something we keep missing, or in the me, even with the Me Too movement, it seems, is that a lot of people are thinking that this is just about sexual come-ons or flirtation. And I'm a very sexual person. And I'm very sex positive. And I've, I'm queer, and I've hung out in a lot of cruisy spaces. And I'm very much for people having good sex with whoever they want, whenever they want. And some of that means we're going to have to flirt with each other, and sometimes we'll get it wrong, and it'll be awkward. Um, but I think if you read this book, you'll see there's no flirtation, where it just is flirt, begins and ends with flirtation. There's yeah. a very clear line of consent that is crossed over and over um, in the sexual pieces in this book. And I, for some reason, it seems to a lot of men that line is blurry, but I saw that queer artist's... Um, piece recently it's like a wall of balloons that spell out a sentence that says straight men understand consent when they go to a gay bar (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. and I really hope that comes through in this book as well that like this isn't about flirtation it's not about sex it's not about promiscuity it's not about awkward flirtation there's a very clear 
moment when this breaches a line of consent. Oh yeah. yeah. It's, it's deeply, it's, it's one of those, it's that classic, like somebody hits on you and you're like, no, thank you. And then you're a bitch and they hate you and it turns and it flips yeah. so quickly. There's like a lot of, a lot of that. Um, no, I loved, um, your, like the who, like you, and your life is so vibrant and beautiful and all of that comes through in the book as well, like that you're a part of this beautiful art community and um, queer community and there's like sex positivity and there's humor sometimes as well that mm -hmm. comes through that. Mm -hmm. it's so like that wonderful part in the beginning, um, in the introduction where you get off the train after this man was like mansplaining oh my God. to you <laughs> and the women are just like, he just... They can't help it. And they just are like, they can't help it. And they're like laughing until everyone's laughing until they cry. And, and there's really, um, I, I was moved to tears a few times dur during this, reading this. And one of them was actually during times when women st stepped up and mm -hmm. just kind of like, mm -hmm. was like, no way, we're not doing this. And it was like so moving to see those parts too. And, and it's so, um, yeah, just to see you getting, there's so many places where you're just in it alone to sort of see parts where you get support, even with that principle being like, no, this isn't acceptable. I was like, oh my God. Oh yeah, and I think I felt relieved in those moments too. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always this myth about women like hating each other and being mean to each other. And there's this thing that I'm told like by so many men, like, well, women hate each other more than men. And I'm like, really, we're not like killing each other and like <laughs> raping each other and beating each other. So I don't know if that's more than men hate women. Um, yeah. But there were so many parts in my life when even women who didn't like me and who maybe did some of that catty stuff in the office where they talked about me behind my back or whatever, um, when I was being sexually harassed by an older man, she didn't really like me. She found me annoying. But an, a slightly older girl or woman, she was, we were in our 20s, so she stepped up and immediately took care of me and made it stop and went to the president of the company. So it's like even sometimes when women do that and they don't like each other, we ultimately care very much for one another, and we don't yeah. want it. We know what this feels like, yeah. and we don't want it to happen to each other. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to read a little bit more? Sure. Um, I think. And then we'll take questions from you guys. I will try so. to read a couple of of a little bit funnier pieces. Now I'm going to move to adulthood, and adulthood doesn't necessarily get funnier, but I'm just going to lighten the mood a little bit. <laughs> That sometimes sexism is ridiculous, um, and this piece is, you know, I don't know how many women here have just been trying to deal with something professionally and just wondered, is this guy giving me the runaround because this is sexist, or does he just not like me, or does, do I just seem to not know what I'm talking about? But this, when this happened, it became very clear to me that this was a sexist situation. This is number 54. I was 26 years old and managing an art project with my then girlfriend who's a visual, visual artist. We had done a large collaborative public art project that involved an image she'd painted including some of my text being printed out and mounted on a large high standing billboard in Brooklyn. We rented out a space on an aesthetically gorgeous building on the Crown Heights Bed-Stuy border that had this giant metal permanent billboard frame on its roof overlooking the street. The billboard had remained empty for many years. We wanted to put something beautiful on it. As the project manager, I raised most of the money to cover the $10,000 project. I also dealt with the ad company that rented out the actual billboard space. I oversaw the terms of the contract and paid for the billboard, printing and mounting. When the billboard went up, the company used the wrong material and it immediately was torn out by the wind, which is quite forceful six stories high. This particular rental cost $5,000. 
That's what my partner and I paid for this job, and it was botched. I went in the first day I could and spoke to the manager of the billboard company. He was religious and wouldn't even shake my hand when I held it out, which is awkward when you're coming in to discuss business. I imme it immediately placed me in the position of being a girl, something very different than him, feeling guilty about making him possibly desire me. I explained to this man that I wanted the billboard replaced with the tight mesh material I had ordered. They had not used the material I had originally requested. The material I wanted was very small mesh, and you can't actually see that it's mesh from far away. You can only tell if you're standing close to it. He argued with me and told me that the vinyl would work better because the mesh would be see-through. But I knew that wasn't the case at the height the billboard stood, and of course, the vinyl he was referring to had not worked. It had blown down and torn immediately. Finally, he insisted that I had actually ordered the vinyl originally, but I had a copy of the contract on me, and it clearly stated I'd ordered the tight mesh. I took it out and showed it to him. When he saw the contract, he became angry. He waved his hands at me and said, why don't you just calm down? He pointed to a chair. Sit down and be quiet, okay? Just sit, wait here, young lady. I stared at the chair. He left the room. We had gone round and round for nearly an hour. He was being nothing but rude and dismissive, even though I am the one who had signed him a check for $5,000 the week before and handed it to him. And it went through. I'd paid for the project as far as he knew with my own money but he had zero respect for me. I had researched searched billboards. I knew exactly what I wanted. I knew what would work on a structure as high up as the one he owned. I went outside instead of waiting in the chair as he'd instructed me and called my friend Danny. Danny is a teacher and a poet. He is a well-spoken heterosexual man. I knew that's what I needed. I needed a man to speak for me. Danny knew absolutely nothing about the project I was doing. Nothing whatsoever. He knew nothing about billboards. I had not mentioned the project to him in any way previously. He knew nothing about the location of the piece. He knew nothing about anything I was doing that day. I called him and asked him for a favor. He thought this was funny, but he agreed. I told him to write down what I needed him to say word for word. What he wrote down was the exact same thing I had been repeating over and over for an hour to the man, without any results. I told him I was going to go upstairs and tell the man that he, Danny, was my boss and that he was pissed. Then I was going to give the man the phone. I said that Danny should talk to him however he would talk to another man to get them to do something. But make sure to say exactly word for word what I had said about the billboard material. I went back upstairs. The business owner was standing in the lobby, and as soon as he saw me, he tore into me, doubling down. I thought you left. I told you to sit there and wait. There's no way we're going to reprint this entire poster on tight mesh, blah, blah, blah. I interrupted him and told him that my boss, the project manager, was on the phone. This, of course, was a lie. I was the project manager. I was my own boss. I said, he really wants to talk to you. The man took the phone and actually went into the other room with my phone and closed the door. He came out four minutes later, tops. He handed me the phone. Okay, he said. Okay, we got it. We figured it all out. What did you decide, I asked. He told me, no worries. You talk to your boss. He'll tell you. We figured it all out. I said that I needed him to tell me, but he was getting mad again and refused. He said, this is between me and your boss, okay? It's all worked out. Talk to him. He'll let you know. I sighed and said, fine, and left, no handshake again, no explanation, and I was so pissed. 
I called Danny back. Danny couldn't believe the man wouldn't even tell me what they decided. But he said he'd agreed to reprint the billboard on the tight mesh that I'd actually ordered. Are you sure, I asked. He was totally against that. What did you say to him? Danny said, I didn't say anything except exactly what I wrote down when we were talking. I said, look, I really need this done this week. I need. And then he repeated the words he'd written down that I dictated to him. And then a man had responded simply, okay, you got it, boss. We'll fix it. It'll be done Monday night. A few weeks later, it was fixed. They reprinted the billboard on the correct material. Or no, a few days later, it was fixed. They reprinted the billboard on the correct material, and it was properly installed. It looked beautiful, and it did not rip or blow down. It stayed up for several months. And I wrote these words down. This makes me fucking crazy. <laughs> How many times have I said something, and then a man has turned around and said the exact same thing I just said, only to have the other men in the room respond positively? after they've ignored me or shot me down. I cannot count how many times this has happened. But this is maybe the most blatant example of that, since the man repeating my words was doing so consciously, at my behest, literally reading a script I'd given him. Thank you. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. Yeah. I love that one. All right. Thank you so much. And now we'll do a short Q&A before the signing. Yeah. You guys have uh, questions from the audience? Yes. <laughs> well, we are in L.A., so if there's any producers in the audience, <laughs> there any talk producers to in the audience? Chavisa after the reading. I mean, just that happening over and over again, because I think, yeah, every woman that I've talked to has that, like my teacher, like my stepmom, they're like, oh, when I, when I was helping, when I was not helping, when I was doing the house, they assumed I was helping my husband and construction workers would only talk to my husband or my grandma going to buy a car, my partner going to buy a car. They were talking to her father instead of her the whole time and she was buying the car over and over again. So yeah, it, it's bizarre. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is. It is reality. But sometimes making p people face reality is an activist Activism, yeah. endeavor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. No. Should I be watching Euphoria? Should we all be watching Euphoria? <laughs> what is Euphoria? People are nodding. Is My good? partner is watching it and is like, you've got to watch it. It's really good. Would lovers of Shavisa Wood's writing love, also love Euphoria. If you like Shavisa Wood, you'll love Euphoria. Okay. I don't know anything. I'm sorry, I don't know it. Okay, I'll make it a broader question. Are there any examples in culture today that you see as incorporating reality? Do you mean... Other TV shows, movies, podcasts? Oh, oh, that talk about sort of sexism this way. I actually really love... Even though it's about rich white women, I really love Big Little Lies. I love that show. It was a feminist sleeper. And I also really loved um, that movie that came out um, about by Nacho. 
the director Nacho. It was called, we saw oh, it with your mom, Becca. Oh, no. <laughs> um, it starts with a C. Colossal. I loved Colossal. Um, if you haven't seen that, that was also a feminist sleeper. It was billed as if it was a romantic comedy, but, like, the man acts in, you know, the male lead has a crush on this woman who doesn't like him, and he just escalatingly acts more and more like the obsessive men in romantic comedies until it becomes horribly violent. Um, and it's, it's, it was a really amazing film that didn't get much attention at yeah, all. I didn't see that. And it's by, a, I think, South American filmmaker. Yeah. I don't know. Colossal. It's very good. Oh, yes. Oh yeah, there are a lot of wonderful books. Mine is just a memoir, so it's literally just 100 vignettes, and I just write it from my personal experience um, to try to say this is what it looks like um, living your life as a woman. And also, I think that just to position it as women and say that women of all colors, all, nation all nationalities, all creeds, all classes, cis, um, trans, gender queer women all experience this um, is an intersectional statement because this is just about sexism um, very blatantly. Of course, it's written from my experience. Um, and I did that, I didn't do any expository writing or any theoretical writing, it's just vignettes. Um, as far as like theory, I really like Claudia Rankin. Like I actually was up too late last night reading her new piece in the New York Times um, that's about race and asking white men about their privilege and how they feel about their own privilege. Um, and I mean, you know, Audre Lorde, of course, um, any of Audre Lorde books, Sister Outsider, and I, I actually like Rebecca Solnit. Um, I love Men Explain Things to Me, and that's the book that I was reading on the subway trying to jog my mind to write the introduction when a man pulled it out of my hand and started explaining that book to me, which he had never read. <laughs> such a great, the intro it is such a great piece. It's so, he's like, you're... You are the mother. You're like, but I'm not your mother. Like that weird, like women are mothers. Women are mothers. So we love them. Like we should, you shouldn't have to. Yeah, he saw the word strike for peace and he thought it was about a sex strike. And he started explaining to me that I shouldn't have to withhold that from men in order for them to be peaceful. And I was just like, that's not what this is about <laughs> at all. And he started arguing with me and telling me that he loved me because I was a mother. And I was like... <laughs> I was like, I'm reading this to try to figure out what to write in the introduction. I'm going to write this in the introduction. <laughs> so that story is now most of the introduction. So good. Um, and Rebecca Solnit's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I realized if I started talking about how I felt or talking, I'm not, I'm not an essayist. I'm not like any great essay, essayist by any means. Um, when I write an essay, it's really painful and I only do it like a couple times a year. I love telling stories. That's my strength and I'm a storyteller. Um, so I thought I'm going to tell these stories. I'm going to do it all in scene. And I thought if I started analyzing society or analyzing what these men's motivations might have been or analyzing the way that I felt about it then and the way I felt about it now. This book would never end. 
Um, and I also th didn't know if it would be that interesting to read. And I also thought I might be wrong about a lot of things. Um, so I decided if I just wrote what happened, because I, I'm really good at doing that really clearly, um, then I could leave it up to the audience to decide why this is happening, what the complex issues are around this, how I must have felt, why they did what they did. I mean, it's, it's so powerful. It's, I think it's such a great choice. It's so much more powerful, I think, because it's like we're just, it's happening to us because it isn't filled with all of this analysis. It's just like we're just in there almost cinematically and we're getting, and it's, it's really powerful. And it's amazing that, you know, that it could have the effect of what you're saying that you heard from a guy that, uh, that a, like, a, you know, like a straight cis man could read it and be like, again, not hearing the, the, the different ar intellectual arguments where it becomes very intellectual, but it's like, no, this is just like a direct assault on, assault on your body and your person that happens like every day. Right. This yeah. is just what happened. There's mm -hmm. no right or wrong response. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly why it happened. I have theories, but yeah. it shouldn't have happened. That's all I'm saying. Yep. Yes. Right now I'm feeling like I'm not going to do any more memoir. <laughs> I'm just like, I hate this. But I have, I do have a book that's like, halfway done called How to Prepare Children um, that's about class in America. Um, I was raised in a really poor rural area and half of my family is like su struggling with homelessness um, most of my life and drug addiction and suicide and like just extreme rural poverty and the other half is working class and even that slight gradation I just saw like this huge difference in the way I was treated when I was with one side of my family versus another. Um, so I wanted just to sort of write about rural America and about the way that America destroys its children and it's called How to, How to Prepare Children. So I'm thinking about writing that now, but I'm also starting and stopping because I hate writing memoir. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy this at all. I'm glad it's done and I'm glad I did it, but it was a difficult process. You need like a little like mouthwash project in between yeah. your memoirs. Like a yeah. like a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, I'm writing. But then, a really... what would you do with a fairy tale? What would I do with a fairy tale? Yeah, I have written some fairy tales already. Oh, um, I wrote a one of my favorite stories that I ever wrote was in my first book, "Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind," mm -hmm. and it's about a teenage girl who falls in love with a buffalo and becomes this buffalo's lover, and then she turns into part buffalo, um, and then there's a dead baby in a bell tower at the end. That's what I mean. That's my favorite. <laughs> That's what I'm talking tower. about. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you read it. <laughs> Why was it hard? It was just, um... He's like, it was bad. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't bad. It was just, you know, it was the first, it was the first book uh, that I read of yours, and, uh, So this man, can I tell them who you are? Um, there was a gay youth group that was like just a saving light for me when I was a teenager, like an hour away from my hometown that I used to sneak to once a week. And he was one of the counselors at the youth group there. 
So 15, 16, 17, 18, it was like once a week I got to hang out with this guy, which was awesome. What the hell, you guys? What is this life we're living? (laughs) It's so beautiful. Um, Uh That was so great. Well, I guess we should probably move over to uh, autographing books. You guys go and buy copy for you. Thank you so much. And then copies for all the men in your life. Um, (laughs) And then come and Chavisa will sign it. And let's clap again for. Just for writing this book, for traveling with it, for reading from it. Thank you so much for it. And thank you for so joining great. me so much, Michelle. Oh, so thank happy you. to be here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.